0: This is C-SPAN's The Weekly, I'm Steve Scully, in Washington. Our focus, Senator Richard Russell and the Senate building which bears his name. The Georgia Democrat served as the state's governor and for nearly 40 years represented Georgia in the U.S. Senate. He died in January 1971. But 50 years later, the debate has resumed over whether his name belongs on that building. From the House floor earlier this month, Texas Democratic Congressman Al Green explaining why.
1: This building, named after this man, Senator Richard Russell, Senator Richard Russell, this building is a symbol of national shame. A symbol of national shame. And I think that because it is a symbol of national shame, and I shall say more to you about it as I do what I'm about to do, which is to label it for what it is, a symbol of national shame. We ought not pretend that this building is a place that ought to honor a person with such a name.
0: That from Congressman Al Green on the House floor. Just ahead, we will talk to the Senate historian, Betty Coad, and one of the definitive authors of a Richard Russell biography, LSU professor Robert Mann. It was during the 1964 debate over the Civil Rights Act that the Georgia Democrat delivered a televised address defending his opposition to that landmark bill.
2: I have stated on the floor of the Senate this afternoon that it seems that a legislative lynching of a minority is in prospect, and I can understand their position because they do not want a full explanation before the country of this bill. It is one of the most dangerous pieces of legislation ever presented to the Congress.
0: It was Senator Russell's opposition to a series of civil rights bills, including the 1964 legislation, that again led Congressman Al Green to the House floor this month.
1: Who was Senator... Richard Russell, this is the senator, Madam Speaker, who in 1935, participated in the very first filibuster of a civil rights bill, Senator Richard Russell. When he and his colleagues stopped an anti-lynching bill with six days of non-stop talking. Senator Richard Russell, the Russell Senate office building.
0: It was in 1972, a year after his death, that the old Senate office building became the Russell Senate office building. In a 1996 speech, Senator Robert C. Byrd of West Virginia explaining why he led the effort for the name change. When
2: I first came to the Senate, in January 1959 my office was in room 342 of this building then known as the old Senate office building and that was still 13 years before the Senate would adopt the resolution that I offered renaming the building in honor of Senator Richard Brevard Russell yet even though his name was not yet affixed to the wall of the building.
0: It might well have been, because he was the senator. That from January 24th, 1996, Senator Robert Byrd, a Democrat of West Virginia. And joining us on the phone is Betty Coad. She is the Senate historian. Let's go back to 1971, the passing of Senator Richard Russell, and how his name became affixed to what was known as the old Senate office building.
3: Yes, in 1971, when Russell died, he was a towering figure in the Senate and uh, and a much beloved figure in the Senate. Today, when we look back at Richard Russell's career, we really look back at his role as the leader of the Southern Caucus and the opposition to, segre- to desegregation and to civil rights legislation. But in 1971, he had a career that, that encompassed many issues and uh, had been a very... A loved and respected figure on the Hill, particularly for his chairmanship of the Armed Services Committee, which he had done for about 16 years. At, in 1971, he had been in the Senate for 38 years. He came in 1933, so he had been a fixture on Capitol Hill for many years and really was in many ways kind of the, the dean and the father figure of the Senate for many years. He was a person who dedicated his life to Senate to his senate responsibilities and his senate duties and so even for those who opposed him on issues particularly opposing him on civil rights issues there was a great deal of respect for him so it's not surprising that in 1972 just you know within a year of his passing the senate decided to name a building in his honor Uh, The 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 controversy that would come up later just had not arisen yet in 1971, and it was kind of pushed to the forefront when they decided to open a third office building, which would become the Hart building, and they decided that they had. The two older buildings, the old Senate office building and the new Senate office building, had to be named in a way that they could distinguish them from the third building to be opened. And so at that time, they decided that they would give that honor to two uh, individuals, one from each party. So they chose Everett Dirksen on the Republican side, Richard Russell on the Democratic side. Both of these men had... Died in recent years. Dirksen died in 1969 and Russell in 71. So, in some ways, it was very much a sentimental choice. These were people that had been in the Senate for many years and had strong ties to every member of the Senate. And so, it was a sentimental choice to choose the two for the naming in 1972.
0: How does the Senate go about selecting these names? Is there a committee? Does it come from the leadership? What is the process?
3: You know, it varies a little bit. And uh, in the case in the 1971 case, I don't in the 1972 case, I should say, I don't know of any committee that was formed. I think it was recommended by it was proposed by Senator Byrd and uh, it was taken up by others. And and it was discussed and debated in in some ways but i don't think there was like a collective action they just realized they needed names for the buildings and these two names came forward Uh, a few years later when they named the hart senate office building it was more or less the same thing Philip Hart at that time, was he was a senator from Michigan. He was fighting cancer and was his, coming to the end of his career. And so it was in large part a sentimental choice to choose his name for that, for the third building. Ironically, the only person who opposed the naming of the building in 1972 was Philip Hart. <laughs> uh, he said that they should wait longer. They should give time and history Uh, a chance to assess the careers of people before they put their names on buildings. But other than that, there there wasn't much discussion. There wasn't a lot of debate about it. These were two well-known figures, and and there was a general consensus that they deserved to have their names on the buildings.
0: And in a couple of minutes, we will learn more about the life and career of Senator Richard Russell. But what about the building itself? What is the history of What was the old Senate office building, now the Russell Senate office building.
3: Well, the Russell Building was the first of the Senate's office buildings. Prior to its opening in in 1909, the Senate really struggled to find working space for its members and for its staff. And uh, in the 1890s, the Senate began to rent space in local apartment buildings and, and to sort of create off-site offices for members. But that became increasingly problematic as the legislative business grew and the the Days got busier. People needed to be close to the Capitol. So finally, in the early 20th century, first on the House side and then on the Senate, they decided to open up their first office buildings. So the Russell Building, which is a beautiful Beaux Arts structure right across the street from the Capitol Building, was was uh, started. The construction began in 1903 and 1904, and then it opened officially in 1909, and when it opened, it housed a two-room suite for every single senator. There were 90 senators at that time, and it, for the first time, offered sort of designated committee space for members, and uh, so it was a it was much-needed space, but it was also a beautiful building that complemented the architecture of the Capitol and, and really became sort of a stately uh, feature of its own on capitol hill through the years it's it's evolved a little bit you know originally in 1909 it was a three-sided building and then in the 1930s uh, they added a fourth side to it, so it's a, it's a square building that takes up an entire city block at this point, and uh, it has special features in it, particularly the caucus room. There is a beautiful caucus room on the third floor that is now named the Kennedy Caucus Room. For many years, it was just known as the Russell Caucus Room, and uh, that room has hosted many public events, but it's also been the site of some of the most important Senate investigations in history. So the Russell building really is uh, one of the m- most important spaces in the Senate complex. It's, it's also a space that's uh, much in demand. <clears throat> Excuse me much in demand by senators it's the oldest and the most beautiful of the buildings so many senators like to have their offices in that space now they're spread out over the three buildings and so those with the most seniority tend to get the spaces in the russell building and uh but it's 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 uh, a busy and central out central location for the senate community
0: of course, in terms of real estate, it is the closest of the three Senate office buildings to the U.S. Capitol. And as you heard from Senator Robert Byrd, a building rich in history, as he mentioned, the first office he had when he came to the Senate back in the late 1950s.
3: That's correct. It is rich in history. And it's seen through the hallways of the Russell building have passed some of the most notable senators in Senate history, and including people like Robert C. Byrd. It's also been Interestingly, the setting for the public face of the Senate in a variety of ways. I mentioned investigations earlier, but it's also been the site of movie productions you know the the film advising consent that was filmed in the early 1960s was filmed in and around the russell building and so you you, you also you also see it in in newsreel accounts and you'll see it on the television today when you watch c-span or when you watch uh evening news broadcasts or whatever you'll often see the senators in the hallways being interviewed there and it's it's just a beautiful and stately background
0: in terms of a potential name change, the Senate Democratic leader, Chuck Schumer, has proposed renaming it after John McCain. What is the process? If that were to happen, how would it happen?
3: Well, those things are usually done by a Senate resolution. Whenever a space is named in the Senate complex, whether it be a room, a building, or a or a uh, balcony, we've got many spaces named for senators now, it's done by resolution. So an individual with whether it be Leader Schumer or someone else, would introduce a a resolution proposing a name change for the building. The resolution would then be debated and voted upon by the Senate.
0: Betty Coad is the Senate historian. Thank you for joining us on C-SPAN's The Weekly.
3: You're welcome, Steve. Thank you for inviting me.
0: And in just a moment, more background on the life of Senator Richard Russell with author and historian Robert Mann. He published a book back in 1996 looking at Senator Russell's career and his relationship with leaders at that time, including President Lyndon Johnson. But first, more from 1964, this televised address by the Georgia Democrat, voicing his strong opposition to the Civil Rights Act of 1964. I
2: said today that men talked of voting but they had in mind schools and that the real purpose of this bill was to give the Attorney General the power to implement the school decision, to strike down the system of separate schools for whites and negroes in the southern states, and to do it by bypassing ordinary laws and procedures, by denying those charged with offenses the benefits of a jury trial. This monstrous bill proposes to give the Attorney General of the United States far greater powers than the President of the United States has ever enjoyed over the individual rights and liberties of our people.
0: That from 1964, Senator Richard Russell in a televised address. And Robert Mann is with the School of Mass Communication at Louisiana State University. He is also the author of the book, The Walls of Jericho, Lyndon Johnson, Hubert Humphrey, Richard Russell, and the Struggle for Civil Rights. So let me begin with that point from Senator Russell. Where was the country? Where was the Democratic Party? And where was Senator Russell with this issue? Well, the the country was moving
4: decidedly in favor of of passing a civil rights bill because of uh, President Kennedy's leadership, because of uh, Lyndon Johnson's leadership, because of people like Hubert Humphrey and others in the Senate, uh, liberal Democrats, uh, and uh, primarily because of the very effective tactics that uh, Martin Luther King and others in the civil rights movement were using in the South to rally public opinion around the country in their favor. Uh, the country was was ready for this for this legislation to be passed, and the Democratic Party uh, outside the South was very was was ready to enact this legislation, and to some extent, some of the you know a, a sizable percentage of the of the Republican Party uh, was as well. Um, but it had not happened, and uh, uh, the, the 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 Senate had not uh, broken a, a filibuster on a civil rights bill. Uh, ever, uh, and it was mainly because of of Russell's leadership, his ability to uh, marshal the forces of the Southern senators, to use the filibuster uh, creatively, to keep his forces together under his his leadership, had gotten them to, them, them to the point in 1964 where um, they they were, they they had a reasonable chance to to beat this bill, but they were they knew they were losing. But they had gotten to the point in nineteen sixty-four where they had never lost a cloture vote over civil rights in the history of the Senate.
0: As you write in the book, Lyndon Johnson had no greater friend in the US Senate than Senator Richard Russell until this this issue came along. Explain.
4: Well Johnson was was a was a guy who uh latched on to older, powerful men. He did he had done that with uh, with Sam Rayburn during his house years and sort of made uh, Sam Rayburn, the Speaker of the House, his surrogate father, and we got to the Senate in 1948. He immediately latched on to Russell and made Russell um, his surrogate father in the Senate. And uh, Russell was a bachelor. Russell was a kind of a lonely guy uh, who didn't um, have a wife, didn't have children, spent his uh, his nights and his weekends alone in his apartment, and was kind of a you know kind of a lonely guy. And and Johnson and his wife Lady Bird showered him with attention. And and Johnson used Russell as um, his vehicle to leadership in the Senate. Johnson's rise to a minority leader and eventually majority leader in the Senate was very quick. uh, And it was mainly because he won Russell's confidence and Russell backed him. Russell had had the ability, uh, Russell could have been the majority leader if he wanted it. uh, But with Russell's sponsorship, Johnson was able to become majority leader. And their relationship was as close as any, as any two men in the history of, of the Senate.
0: Well, you've already answered part of that question, but how can we best understand Richard Russell, his ideology, where he came from in Georgia, and how that affected his point of view when it came to the Civil Rights Act?
4: Well, you know, I, I, one of the things that was important to me in understanding Russell when I was writing my book was to, to keep in mind that he was born about 30 years after the, after the end of the Civil War. And so the memories of the Civil War were, um, were, were still very strong among the people that he grew up with in the region of, of, of Georgia, Winder, Georgia, where he grew up. Um, and uh, that was, you know, for a lot of Southerners, not just Russell, that was uh, an o- sort of an overwhelming uh, memory, even though Russell wasn't alive for it. It was still a memory of the time that I think shaped him, uh, shaped his views, Politics shaped his views of uh, of states' rights, and shaped his racial his 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 views on on race and his views on um, the role that black people uh, should have in society. Russell was not um, a race baiter. He was not a Theodore Bilbo or James O. Eastland. Um, you know, he wasn't one of those. He wasn't one of those those uh those politicians who played on racial fears to win elections but he was not really that particularly enlightened about race and um and 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 i think that um he i think he was a a, a man of um he he was a man sort of cursed by uh where he came from uh the the period that he grew up in the people he that he grew up around and um i think he was a tragic a tragic figure because he was truly one of the most talented people in public life in those days and in so many other ways he would have. He, even Harry Truman thought he would have made a, a wonderful president but the tragedy of Russell was his views on race and his unwillingness to give even an inch on civil rights
0: well this may further explain where he was coming from again from that televised address in 1964 where he viewed this as really an attack on Southerners in general let's listen
2: With great pride, I declared this afternoon that I resented with every power of my being this hate campaign against the South, that I was proud to be a southerner, and that the people of the South were a kindly, generous, courageous, and patriotic people, the peers of any in this land. Our backs are to the wall, but we intend to fight with every weapon at our command.
0: Robert Mann, as you listen to that, what are your thoughts?
4: Well, I mean, I just hear echoes of the Civil War. I just hear, you know, echoes of Civil War, of um, analogies of war, of battle. That's like how Russell saw it. Uh, the, the people around him, his, his colleagues, called him the Southern, the Southern general of their of their force of their Southern force arrayed against civil rights. I just hear echoes of um, the uh, of the Civil War and this attitude that the, the South was a victim. That the South was uh, being told by uh, the rest of the country how to run its business, and these, you know, these were people. Russell uh, and others believed deeply in in, in states' rights. That that the states had the right uh, to uh, set their laws when it came to race relations. uh, That that businesses had the right to serve who they wanted, and the federal government had no business telling them who they should serve or who they should hire.
0: How did all of this affect the Democratic Party and the future? Of the party, so the, the
4: the party, especially in the South, was the racist party. It was the white supremacist party. It was the white party. And um, uh, Russell uh, was was I think strangely enough, as, as opposed as he was to civil rights, ironically, he played a role in the passage of the civil rights legislation. He he played a role in in ushering in the Democratic Party as the champion of civil rights. And the way he did that was that he ran for president in 1952. And he, he, re, he realized very quickly that he, he had no chance of winning the nomination. And he concluded that the reason that, that he didn't, because he was a sectional candidate who was seen only by people outside of the South as being the guy who was opposed to civil rights and who was blocking progress on civil rights. He knew that, that for a Southerner to be elected president, that that Southerner could not be, uh, as opposed to civil rights, could not have the, civil, the anti-civil rights um, tattoo on him and i believe that's why he let Lyndon Johnson and the southerners and and the, and the and the and the more liberals in the senate pass the 1957 civil rights act that's i believe that's why russell and the southerners did not filibuster the 1957 civil rights act because russell wanted to give Lyndon Johnson some civil rights credentials without passing a bill that really did much which the civil rights bill did not but it opened it it, it broke the uh, it broke the ice it led to the 1960 civil rights act which led to the 1964 civil rights act and more importantly, for Lyndon Johnson and the Democratic Party, it gave the country a Southern Democrat as president who was able to, uh, who was able to pass, uh, lead the you know, charge for that bill in, 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 a, in a way that probably no one else in the country could have.
0: But again, in, in terms of politics, we had Nixon's Southern Strategy in 1968. President Johnson's comment that he may have lost uh, the South for a generation. All of that was playing into the politics of this civil rights debate.
4: Yeah. Oh, absolutely. And, and you know, you see that uh, probably most clearly in the 1960 presidential race when the black vote was still up for grabs. You know, the uh, African Americans had, had tended to vote more, especially in the South, had tended to vote more for Republicans than they had for Democrats because they, they correctly saw the Democratic Party as their oppressors, as the white party. Uh, the white supremacist party. And um, it was John F. Kennedy's decision to, um, and and Robert Kennedy's uh, efforts to try to free Martin Luther King from prison in Georgia in in, uh, in a a month before the, the 1960 election that persuaded King, you know, King's father and the people around King to support uh, Kennedy for president, and decisively moved the, the black vote around the country toward the Democrat, and may have made the difference in that in that race. And I think that was the beginning of of uh, you know of the of the sense that it's the Democratic Party that's going to defend our rights. It's the Democratic Party that we need to align with if we want to pass the civil rights legislation. Even though that Democratic Party was still dominated largely by these these Southern Democrats, uh, that began to change the way that blacks around the country looked at the two parties.
0: Let me remind our listeners that we are talking with Robert Mann. He is the author of The Walls of Jericho, Lyndon Johnson, Hubert Humphrey, Richard Russell and the Struggle for Civil Rights as a way to better understand the 1964 Civil Rights Act and the role of Senator Richard Russell. And of course, the debate here in Washington as to whether or not the Russell Senate office building should bear his name. Let me ask you very directly, was he a racist?
4: he was definitely a racist. Russell was, there's no doubt that in my mind, he was a racist. Uh, he was a white supremacist. Um, I, uh, I was invited to to, to speak at the university of Georgia on the hundredth anniversary of his death in the, I mean, of his birth in the, uh, in the early nineties. And i stated very clearly in my, my remarks that Russell was, was a racist. And, uh, after it was over, uh, several of his relatives, his, his nieces and nephews came up to me and they said, um, you know they appreciated the, the, what I said about their their uncle because there's a lot to there's a lot of great there's a, there's a lot to commend Russell as a, as a patriot as a as a great American leader. Um, but they but they said you know we can't deny that he was a racist. Uncle Dick was a racist, and um, I think there's just no question about it. It's just you know there was just his his entire career from beginning to end from the early 30s through the late 60s his, his entire career in the Senate was characterized tragically tragically. Uh, by his views on race.
0: So what are your thoughts about the ongoing debate here in Washington? We heard from Congressman Al Green. He was very clear the name should come down from the Russell Senate office building.
4: You know, I'm one, I'm one who believes that people ought to be viewed in the, the totality of their career. You know, that, people, that we, and I think, as I said, I think there's a lot to be said for Russell um, and, and every other aspect of his career. But I think that because he... Um, devoted himself more completely to defeating the civil rights legislation uh, through the 40s and the 50s and the 60s i, I, I think that his name is inextricably um, tied to white supremacy to racism to uh, the use of the filibuster to uh, to deprive african Americans of their of their civil and human rights and so I, I I think it's I think it's hard to defend keeping his name on that building i I, I wouldn't I wouldn't defend keeping his name on that on that building despite the fact that i think there's just so much about russell that is appealing um he's inextricably tied with with uh, with racism
0: it was on july 2nd 1964 that president johnson signed the civil rights act of 1964 this is what he said
2: its purpose is to promote a more abiding commitment to freedom a more constant pursuit of justice and a deeper respect for human dignity. Let us close the springs of racial poison. Let us pray for wise and understanding hearts. Let us lay aside irrelevant differences and make our nation whole."
0: I'm sorry. That from July 2nd, 1964, President Lyndon Johnson. Robert Mann, as you listen to that nearly 60 years ago, what's the legacy? How does a historian view that moment in America's history? And again, the role of Senator Richard Russell?
4: Well, you know, when I when I listened to uh, that gave me chills. I mean, it just gives me chills to hear that to hear those words and to know how how hard that victory was, you know, that it, it looking back, it seems like it must have been inevitable. You know, it took, it, but it took over 80 days of a filibuster in the Senate to finally get that bill passed. It was not a fait accompli when they, when they started. Um, so, you know, Russell's defeat, the Southerners defeat on that bill was total and complete. They didn't even try to compromise in any way. It was, it was all or nothing and they got nothing. Um, but here's what I mean when I say about Russell, I had a lot to commend him when Russell lost. When, when the Civil Rights Bill was, in, was passed and signed into law by the president, uh, by Lyndon Johnson, Russell said, "It's now the law of the land, and we got to, you know, we got to live by it." And you know, I, I was against it. My, my my constituents were very much against it; they don't like it, but it's the law of the land, and we gotta we gotta we gotta do what that law says. And while he didn't support it, he didn't try to defy it, which I think is is definitely to his credit.
0: And one final question, because he died fifty years ago. With his passing, how did the Senate view Richard Russell? Well, because
4: Russell was such a giant, because Russell was was so um, influential and and had his fingerprints on so many other pieces of legislation, um, because Russell was so well respected by his colleagues for his complete and total devotion to the Republic and to, um, and to the Senate, you know, I think he was seen as a sort of an embodiment of the Senate Uh, even by people that, that, um, that opposed him, people like Hubert Humphrey, who, uh, who who fought with Russell for years over civil rights, respected him, uh, cared deeply for him, uh, considered him a friend. And so I think, you know, at the time of Russell's death and, and, and and in in the years after that, I think Russell commanded a, you know, a, a, a tremendous amount of respect from his former from his former colleagues, I think over time, you know, that has dimmed because there's no one in the Senate now who served with Russell, and um, and he is rightly remembered, I think, uh, as I as I said earlier, for that opposition to civil rights. But but um, but at the time, his colleagues viewed viewed the totality of his career, which again, as I say, was was a remarkable remarkable Senate career.
0: And there is so much in your book. With a minute remaining. Was there one thing in researching Senator Richard Russell that surprised you the most? Uh,
4: you know, the, the, the thing that I love about Russell and the thing, the thing I would love to see happen again in Congress is that Russell, I mean, it's not even a surprise, but Russell every year would decamp DeCamp from Washington. He would move uh, back to Winder, Georgia, the little town where he, where he was born and raised, and he would run his office for, for a solid six months out of the courthouse in Winder, Georgia, the most powerful member of the Senate. Um, one of the most powerful members of the government would would operate out of this little small town in Georgia for half the year. And um, that's, a, that's a part of the Senate that I wish we could find a way to recapture, to reconnect members to their constituents in ways that I think was, was, was better for the Republic in those days.
0: Robert Mann joining us from Baton Rouge, Louisiana. He is with the School of Mass Communication at LSU and the author, Of the Walls of Jericho, Lyndon Johnson, Hubert Humphrey, Richard Russell, and of the struggle for civil rights, we thank you for joining us on The Weekly. Thank you, Steve. And a reminder, be sure to subscribe so you never miss an episode. Follow us on Twitter at C-SPAN Radio. I'm Steve Scully. Thank you for listening.